From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Klarna launches a card in the UK. Bank of America says a digital US dollar is inevitable. And Bolt CEO compares Y Combinator and Stripe to the mob in a fiery Twitter thread. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we'd like to tell you a little bit about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11fs.com forward slash decoding. Enjoy. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings-only event. That's right, no speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships, and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union, or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket. Welcome to episode 598 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News today by my 11FS colleague, Ewan Silver, CTO. Um, so thanks for joining us, Ewan. You were recently on a part of 11FS's new Decoding Banks YouTube series. Uh, can you give the audience a little bit more information about that? Yeah, hey, Guerra. Good to see you again. Um, Decoding, Decoding Banks is basically an 11-part series we put together to give people an introduction to, to fintech and to banking to explain how it came about, what how, how it works, and where it's going. So you can find it on uh, YouTube or 11fs.com slash decoding. It's awesome. Can't wait to see on the big screen. Um, all right. And of course, we're, we're always joined by some very special guests. So first up, returning to Fintech Insider, we've got Polly Jean Harrison, Features Editor at the Fintech Times. Thank you for joining us today, Polly. How is your 2022 looking and what's 2022 looking like in Fintech so far? Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really great to be back uh, on the podcast. And 2022 is looking great so far. I mean, what are we, just about a month in and already we've had some really big news, some really exciting things happen. So it's going to be a good year. I'm calling it now. Yeah, everyone's everyone's hopeful for 2022, so thank you. And making their FinTech Insider debut, we've got Michael Wilkinson, the COO at Everything. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. We'll get into your news a little bit later, but can you give us a little elevator pitch on everything? Yeah, sure. I'm, uh, I'm happy to, and, and thank you very much for having me. Um, so, so look, Gen Z are the most populous generation on our on our planet, but but there are really very few financial experiences that are built explicitly for them. So we're building the financial experience that younger generations actually want, one that's rewarding, one that's exciting and, and, and social. And that starts with a, a free debit MasterCard where users can win instant cash rewards between £1 and a million pounds every time they tap or they spend. So you could be jumping on the tube or doing some online shopping and ping, you get a notification and that 10 grand's already in your account. And our members can also invite friends and family into something that, that we call squads. The more people you invite, the more squads you're a part of, the, the higher your chance of winning because now you have a chance of winning every time they spend as, as well. 
So yeah, look, our, our waitlist just gone live on joineverything.com and, and the product is coming over the next few months. Please do go check us out. Awesome. Thank you. And with that, let's get into the news. So Klarna, buy now, pay later firm to launch a card in the UK. So this is from The Guardian. Buy now, pay later giant Klarna is putting further pressure on banks and credit card firms by launching its first physical card in the UK. The Klarna card will initially only include Klarna's pay in 30 feature, which lets shoppers pay down their debt within 30 days. The Swedish company says it's, it intends to add more of its payment options, including splitting purchases into three monthly payments to the card over time. So Klarna also confirmed it, is, it had built up a waitlist of 400,000 consumers in the UK, which it claimed showed strong demand for a new approach to credit following a successful launch in Germany and Sweden. So the Klarna card is part of the payment giant's efforts to rival major credit card firms and banks that offer consumer loans by giving customers a chance to delay their payments at physical shops without incurring interest charges or late fees. Um, I'm going to come straight to one of a member of our panel who's chomping at the bit to talk about Pay Now, Pay Later. Ewan, what are your first initial thoughts when you heard about this? Yeah, Glare, honestly, I, I think you need to go to somebody else first because I'm gonna I'm gonna rant. So somebody says something positive. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, let, let's let's go to Polly. Polly, thoughts on on this news? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it wasn't super surprising to me, and I think this was always going to happen because Klarna have been very keen to uh, compete with all the other sort of big, both credit card companies or just financial services companies in general. I think the card itself is super interesting because, like, has Klarna become a credit card company? Because I know there's been a lot of sort of discourse from them and other buy now, pay later um, industry members being like, we're not credit cards and very much separating themselves from credit cards and making them sound, you know, the, to be the better alternative to a credit card. So I think it's interesting that they have pretty much released a credit card. But, you know, is it better than a credit card? That's what I would be interested in. And also there's something I haven't seen from my research. I don't know if any of you have. Does using the Klarna credit card affect your credit score in any way? I know they do a credit check for you to uh, get one. And then how much money you can uh, use is determined by like your financial history. But I'm wondering, can it build up your credit score in the same way a traditional credit card can? That would be something that is super interesting to me because then that would make it definitely a more useful product. I mean, to your point, uh, Polly, they haven't built a credit card. They built a debit card, right? And actually, if you look at it, the credit card give you gives you a lot of a uh, you know, it gives you a lot of protection if you if a if a good fails to arrive or or stuff or or you actually don't make the payment, which I, I guess helps mm. the, the the merchant. But if you know if the good doesn't arrive, you know the credit card will reimburse you. That doesn't happen on a buy now pay later scheme. Um, you know, and I one of the problems I really have with buy now pay later is that um, you know people are are doing it because they don't want to take on debt, they don't want to take on credit, which is the thing they don't like about credit card, and they don't know that's actually what's happening with buy now pay later. You know, I think there's a massive regulatory problem here. And if you've got something that looks like a credit card, um, but actually isn't a credit card and is not regulated, I think there's a massive gap. And I think the FCA and, and other regulators need to look into this. And and they're, they're, they're taking so long to to get the to get the regulation out as as well. I I, I do agree with you, you and I think it's it's just so easy to to make these payments. And I think you've got a whole host of of people perhaps that. Um, don't have the the understanding at the point of purchase that they are actually taking on on credit or or just feel like it's free money that that end up getting into a mounting debt problem. So I think the yeah the I'm not a big fan of, of credit credit as it is, but unfortunately the whole world seems to seems to run on it. 
And like Michael, everything is really geared at Gen Z, you know, the younger populations and buy now, pay later is also geared at, at younger populations who, um, uh, to Polly's point as well, like want to or need to build credit to be included in the financial financial industry. Um, have you heard about these kinds of um, products really? What have you heard from your customers, Michael, uh, from about products like buy now, pay later? Are, are people flocking to them? Are people scared of them? What's what's the what's the sense on the ground? Yeah, no. So it's it's a really interesting point. And actually, what we've found that there are a couple of kind of fintech trends that have emerged as we've started kind of building out our product. And, and one of them, what well, one of the three is that is that Gen Z in particular, younger customers in, in particular, are trying to to steer clear of debt. And I think that raises a really important point. Like they, they don't like credit. They don't want to um, be involved in with with credit products. And actually, there was a really fascinating report that came out from EY saying that they'd actually rather pay in physical cash than than, than use a credit card. So, so I, I think there's a there's an interesting disconnect here between a younger generation that don't want to take on debt and a, and a younger generation that are inherently taking on debt without perhaps realizing it. And I think that's that's one of the the big challenges that, that the FCA are going to have to to grapple with in in my mind they're taking a long time to to get some of this kind of regulation out um and i think it's really important because more and more people are, are sliding down down this path of unintentionally paying in 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 credit for products without the 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 necessary regulation needed to to make it clear and inform them that that, that that's actually the case yeah, I mean, we, we've got a very low interest rate environment at the moment, right? And I think we've had a, you know, for the last you know, pretty much decade, right? It's It's been easy credit. And so so money has flown. And I don't think many people have really lived in a world where interest rates start to go up and, and payment starts to get hard. I think it was interesting, you know, Australia a couple of years ago, reports of, I think, the ASIC, the, the Australian sort of investment um, watchdog, you know, they, they observed that one in five people are having payment arrears on, on buy now, pay later. Uh, you know, this this is going to be a problem when it kicks off. And at the moment, until people realise they're taking on credit, I think it's a, I think something's going to go badly wrong. I think it's not even just like an issue for like consumers as well. I think there's kind of like the merchant aspect that we do need to consider. Obviously, if you want to use sort of Klarna traditionally, uh, offer that payment option as a merchant, you like sign up to it and you pay a fee per, per transaction, that sort of thing. Obviously, with the Klarna card, the Klarna is going to make their money by charging a fee for each transaction to each retailer, which obviously, you know, payment transaction fees part and parcel of it. But you, you've kind of lost your choice there um, and you have to pay that fee regardless of whether you wanted to offer Klarna in the first place. And with, you know, transaction fees and card fees and everything being like quite big news at the moment, what with the Visa, Amazon thing. And just in general, I think like merchant transaction fees are quite a big issue, especially when it comes to SMEs and other small businesses. I think that could be a really, it's just a strange point for me there. I think that they're just taking the control and taking the choice away from small merchants and small shops. And they just, they'd have to pay the fee regardless of whether they wanted to or not. I think that's definitely one of the, you know, phenomenons of, of, a, of a good platform business that has two sides, you know, customer and, and, and retailer side, you know, because it's just taken off, right? So BNPL is everywhere. You know, Santander have also announced the launch of Xenia, I think, uh, which is a new buy now, pay later service in Germany. The, you know, BNPL products are being rolled out all over the place. You know, Klarna, for example, is is one of the most valuable tech businesses in Europe worth $46 billion. Um, so with, with everyone getting involved, this kind of seems to be like it's becoming the norm. It's no longer a passing fad. Uh, do you think, like you and do you think this is really, like, is, is there 
is there redemption? What do you, what do you think the impact of regulation will have on these firms? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Santander and the bigger banks are getting involved, and I mean, you're right. It is it's growing massively, and, and Klarna is a huge tech company. You know, I think one of the things that you know about the banks is that um, you know they do take regulation very seriously. You know, um, they've been obviously been mis-selling scandals in the past, but compliance is a big thing at the moment. And maybe with the big banks coming in, and Santander has got a large number of customers. I think it's like two million or something. I read very very quickly on this new buy now pay later capability they have. Um, you know, that might drive a fundamentally different way of uh, of, of of doing credit checks and so on and so forth. Maybe back, uh, you know, the, the FCA is do, is doing stuff with the Woolard report and, and so on and so forth. Maybe the banks getting involved will start to change things in a different way. Michael, you looked like you wanted you had something to say. Do you want to jump in there? No, I was I was nodding and agreeing. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, definitely. I think the big boys coming in and and playing in this space. Uh, it's no longer a quick money grab for the tiny little fintech. So, I you know I think that like regulation is very much it's very much needed and very over long overdue. Um, but the fact that this is a card, um, what impact do you think that will have on on younger populations who you know say you know we get to the utopic world where like people understand that they're taking on debt and they start to you know break down every single purchase. You know, um, what what does that do to the psychology of, of like young people, Polly? And not that you're a psychologist or anything, but like, what, <laughs> what do you? How do you foresee this play? You know, playing out in the future. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I guess as a pretty young person myself, I'm 25. Like, the idea of you know credit and debt, like Michael was saying about it's everything customers, it is super scary. But if it was a place where everyone understood the financial implications, everyone had pure knowledge of, you know, everything and it was all perfect and amazing. I can't see it being, you know, a bad thing. You know, every tool is useful if you use the tool in the right way. If people get this card and they use the card in the right way, maybe, you know, they really want to buy something, but they just want to wait till payday in order to afford it. But they, you know, they need to get it now that I can see where this card is being useful. I find it interesting that they're not offering their pay in three uh, traditional product on the card, though I think they're going to be if I've read the um, the uh, press release right. But I, yeah, I, if you use anything right, then it is useful. And it's the same with credit cards. You know, if you use a credit card wrong, that can be super detrimental to you and your financial health. And it'll be the same with buy now, pay later. If you use it correctly, then everything's fine and hunky-dory. It's just when you use it wrong or you don't understand it, that's when the problems come in. Uh, as I was going to say, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I think there's probably three three or four things that, that I think maybe are missing. Like I, I actually use, I use Klarna. I use some of the, the, the buy now, pay later products. I don't use them. I don't use them very often, um, uh, but I can see why why people would find them helpful and, and and find them useful if you're coming to kind of the close of the month or 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 whatever it was just to spend a little bit more. But but I think I think it's really important that 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 users are informed. Like what happens if I if I don't pay? Um, what, what's the monetary cost of this rather than like a, a a percentage base that no one no one typically understands and kind of how does that impact my my future credit and i think on the other side it, it's really important to to be able to to, to get a, a real-time understanding of whether someone can actually afford it and, and that's the thing that i would i would imagine Klarna are are, are, are wrestling with and, and perhaps they're they're using open banking perhaps they're using a mix of open banking and and, and, and credit but getting a feeling for for exactly how much someone can or, or can't afford on on a particular payment it is is quite complex and i think that's some of the things that if i was the regulator i i, I would be thinking about 
And also, um, the, if you have a, a customer, or one of the downsides of, of this industry is you, your, your long-term customers are, are often people that, that are living in, in debt. So do they have a duty of care to, to support some of these and, and in an interesting way, actually make them less of a customer? Like that, I think that would be a, an interesting piece to, to consider. It's not natural for a business to want to do that, but, but actually it's probably healthy. I think we'll, we'll end on that point because, yeah, I think definitely we, we still don't quite know. Um, you know, we haven't had much data in terms of like longevity about the effects, but um, we could go on and on about this, but let's move on to the next story. Uh, so the Bank of America says a digital U.S. dollar is inevitable. So this is from Bloomberg. The U.S. will likely move forward with its own digital currency with issuance occurring between 2025 and 2030, according to the Bank of America. So the U.S. government-backed coins, also known as central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, are inevitable, uh, are an inevitable evolution of today's electronic currencies. Strategists Al Shah and Andrew Moss wrote in a report this week. The Federal Reserve, also known as the Fed, uh, discussed developing its own coin in a 35-page paper, saying the paper was just the first step and it didn't intend to proceed without support from the White House and Congress. Uh, meanwhile, President Joe Biden is expected to issue executive orders directing multiple agencies to develop a federal strategy on cryptocurrencies. So Bloomberg Bloomberg reported this. So this could, this could come out as soon as February. That's insane. America, one of the most, um, you know, complex and like financially uh, sophisticated systems, I'm going to call the country a financially sophisticated system, um, are mulling over CBDCs now, talking about com coming out 2025 to 2030, Biden saying he's going to executive order it for February. What the hell is going on in America? Does anyone have any thoughts about this? I think, um, you know, you, you call, uh, you know, the states a financially sophisticated country, and they are, but also their financial system is actually in a real mess. You look at things like ACH and so on and so forth. It's it's borderline are sort of archaic, especially compared to, I don't know, the UPI in, in, in India and so on and so forth. So, you know, you can kind of make an argument to say maybe they need to jump ahead and actually some kind of central bank digital currency, uh, you know, could, could, could work well here. Um, you know, it's interesting, I think, on the, on the decoding series – uh, Nick Ogden makes a comment that, um, you know, all money is digital to some degree, right? Because it's already in ledgers and so on and so forth. So he's obviously doing his work with RTGS. Actually, how much more does this add? You know, what does it disintermediate and what does it add to the to the financial system? It'd be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, look, I, I, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic generally, actually, and, and even more fascinated by the, the fact that, that it's being pushed through um, at such a pace as this is not the country where lots of people still get paid via a, a pay check, like a physical check. Well, I don't, I don't remember the last time I, I saw my checkbook. Never, never, never mind received one. But I, I think, I think there are some really interesting points to, to to draw out of this, and there, are, there are some some reasons that I actually think that number one, it, it may eventually be be inevitable in, anyway. But but there are some kind of key advantages, and and I think look, if you look at so private companies like transacting in 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 kind of typically local currencies. These guys are, are going to be forced to become more transparent. Like it, this will minimise corruption, um, a whole host of of other other illicit activities, lots of which are actually driven by uh, paper paper currencies. So if you're removing if you're removing these big the, these big dollar bills in in the US, do do you kind of 
chop, uh, I don't know, the drug trade, uh, money laundering, tax evasion, and, and a whole host of, of other things. So I think there's a, the, there's a benefit to, to doing that. And, and actually, the, the, the Fed over there have been facilitating this by continuing to print money for quite a long time. Um, I think as, as well, it's, it's got the opportunity to, to massively kind of increase financial inclusion. So I don't know, you could have citizens that um, hold funds at, at a central bank account, they, they hold their coins, they can put them straight in there. Um, and this could provide financial services for people that have kind of historically been underbanked or, 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 or unbanked. Um, but, but it's going to come at a cost definitely for, for, for the banks them, themselves. So if you can open a bank account um, without the need for a bank through a central bank, maybe with no fees, with low transaction costs, like this is going to massively impact traditional kind of financiers' um, deposit flows. What do you what do you think is driving this like sudden interest in is it is it are, are they looking for taxes are they or are they are they genuinely trying caring about financial inclusion um Michael what do you think is driving this um, uh, personally I, I think it's it, it's probably uh, the other side of the coin I, I think these guys are um probably a bit worried about losing control over the over the money supply like look at you look at the rising adoption of of cryptocurrencies and bitcoins and a whole host of of other things um and they don't want to lose their i don't know i guess their their kind of grip on the stability and and money in general in in, in the country I, I think it's probably more international uh, sorry us um control focus that, than it is them thinking about the the long term implications and welfare of their uh, uh, of their citizens but uh, i might be being a bit skeptical Totally fair, I think. Yeah, you and you look like you have something to say. No, no, I, I, I was basically, I think I, I was going to agree. I, I mean, money at the end of the day is power, right? And governments are about power. So to be able to control that is is key. I do think a lot of the, the crypto stuff is, you know, slightly optimistic. They think it's going to take over the world and the governments are just going to roll over. Um, you know, I do, I do think it's interesting. Obviously, the Bank of England is looking at this, but there have been reports from, you know, the House of Lords. I think the... Uh, the Economic Affairs Committee looked at this last year, and they they had said there were concerns um, around things like uh, you know financial stability and privacy. So, kind of to Michael's point, it's you know yeah you can track a lot of stuff, but necessarily do you always want to do that? Anonymity in the financial system is useful. It, there's different sides to it, and also like if you look at the countries that have launched CBDCs, right? The the two that come to top mind are, are China and Nigeria. You know, China already super digitally savvy, um, incredibly like um, connected population. Um, Nigeria, not so much, but um, their currency has seen a lot of uh, problems with with uh, devaluation of uh, fluctuating um, value, uh, but also, you know, scarcity of, of the US dollar and, and, and caps on how much people can buy, you know, how many US, like foreign currency people can hold. So the government's kind of just like mandated um, the the use of the e naira for example like what do you think that that could look like in the uk because i know you when you said that the, the uk um is not convinced right there's not much of a case that's that's being seen but w- w- what's gonna you know what's the end of this conversation gonna look like in the uk no i, I mean i i think there are there are people in the uk so it was the it was a committee of the house of lords said they were skeptical i think for me i think the uk has a very sophisticated financial system right i think the regulator is sophisticated uh, you know we are we are leading. That's why fintech is is has historically been a been a UK thing. Um, I think the UK will be on top of it. I think the Bank of England will will engage. We are going to have some kind of digital system. Uh, you know already, 
you know, you've got sort of access into the into the payment rails that are becoming more ubiquitous. You no longer have to be a major clearing bank and so on and so forth. How far you can take that, you know, how uh, without, um, you know, how can you give that to individuals? Direct access, I don't know. Uh, the UK, I think, will will be at the forefront of a lot of this stuff. I hope, Polly, do you have any, as a journalist, are you seeing, what are you, what are you hearing on the ground? What are you seeing about um, CBDCs in the UK specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think there's definitely like an appetite there for them. And there's definitely an interest. I mean, if you look at the global interest, isn't it something like 90% of the world's countries are looking into it at least. So I definitely think, you know, it's there and whether it's inevitable or not, I, I don't know. But I do think we will be seeing a lot more come into play. Um, and I guess the only things that we haven't quite touched on yet is the security aspects of, of CBDCs. Um, and I guess in theory, they will be more secure because they can, you know, exist in the digital format um, with cryptography and a public ledger. So it's easy to track and, you know, keep track of everything. But then I guess that does then feed into the whole privacy aspect of things and whether you want to be tracked, as Ewan was saying. So it's a very interesting topic, I think. Uh, but... I think they're just, they are just going to keep going and keep rolling. And I think we're just seeing examples of that, particularly with, you know, with the US saying that they're going to be into it. If they've done it, I feel like we're going to see a lot more following suit. Yeah. I mean, like you just said, like the US talking about it, like maybe has the Federal Reserve, um, you know, wading into this conversation, does that signify a milestone, do you think? I mean, yeah, I think it does. And I think whenever anyone makes a big announcement like this, I think it's always going to be a milestone. Um, and I think we're just going to keep seeing more and more people. And I know the uh, Peer Committee of Peers in the House of Lords uh, here in the UK said there was no convincing case for a CBDC. But I think that's going to change, whether that's going to change, you know, soon over the next couple of months in the year or whatever. But I do think there is going to be a bit of a turnaround in that point. And, and the Britcoin, as it is so-called, uh, may come a lot more popular than it is right now, perhaps. Bitcoin sounds like a, another word that is used in the crypto community. But um, I, I guess a question to the panel. Does the panel believe that CBDCs are inevitable, Michael? Yeah, look, I, I think um, I think in a world that, that, that's going digital, um, that, that something uh, something driven by by the central banks in in a digital in a digital way is is inevitable. It, it might not be within the next five years. Um, but if you if you were to say, look, 15 years from from now, we're not going to have a, a central bank created digital currency. I'd uh, I'd probably take uh, take issue with that. I, I think I think it's inevitable. It's, it's a case for me of, of how long it how long it takes and how it's structured and uh, and how it's kind of onboarded um, uh, within the, the, the kind of populations of those those central banks and, and the government. Polly, do you think uh, it's a terminal situation? Yeah, I mean, I disagree with everything that Michael and you have already said, you know, come 2025, I think that seems to be the year for CBDCs from everything I've heard. Everyone keeps saying 2025. Uh, so we'll get there. And I think it's just, yeah, it's just going to happen. That's going to be it. Let's just get through the pandemic in 2022. Um, but yeah, all right. If you want to hear more about uh, a, a thorough deep dive into CBDCs, go check out our episode on our sister show, Blockchain Insider, episode 132. Central back digital currencies are so hot right now. Um, really great episode. Highly recommend go checking that out. All right. So we're going to take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. What do the best user journeys and customer experiences in financial services look like? The first annual 11FS Pulse Report looks back at some of the best customer experiences of 2021, 
and is filled with insight from leading fintechs, such as Plaid, Starling and Crowdcube. We also look at predictions from the industry experts on trends that will affect product design in 2022. Head to 11fs.com forward slash pulse report to download the report and see what's hot in fintech UX today. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Everything raises 2 million euro to reinvent premium bonds in the UK. So everything, a UK-based fintech company looking to reinvent premium bonds for Gen Z and young millennials in the UK has raised 2 million euros from angel investors and entrepreneurs. So everything which is free to join and use will be launching a debit card with a with MasterCard in the UK market. Users can win instant cash rewards with ev- every time they tap, spend or save money. Uh, it's an evolution of, of the UK's most popular savings method, premium bonds, with a social twist. To increase the chance of winning, people can invite their friends and family to their own squads and have a chance to win every time they tap, they tap or save too. The company plans to launch in the UK in the coming months and has already opened up its waitlist to people for people to sign up. So, Michael, I'm going to come to you naturally uh, first on this. Like, how did how did this idea come together? Um, you gave a little bit of an elevator pitch earlier, but tell us about like the origins of this and and what led you to to, to founding um, everything. Yeah, sure. Uh, very very happy to. So, I guess probably uh, um, serendipity timing and and a bit of a kind of coming together of of a few macro trends that that we'd noticed. And started exploring in our in our previous ventures. So um, the, the the first of those really, there's no doubt that everyday finance has progressed massively since the emergence of neo banks, and you've got customer experience that that's come beautifully along on on that journey as as well. But but everyday finance is still very much a single player game. It's transactional. It, it's not really exciting or, or rewarding. So I don't know you spend, you save. It looks pretty and it, and it works well, but you don't get ma- uh, you don't get much back. And and I guess you do it alone. So, so secondly, then you, you have premium bonds, which you which you touched touched on. Now they're they're great, they're super popular. Um, you get a thrill and some excitement if you win, but it's really analog. It's slow and it's not social at all. And uh, we really thought that they're just no longer aligned um, with our digital world. Now the the, the third trend was um, this kind of financially underserved Gen Z and, and young millennials. Now, they make up such a large proportion of our global population and a, and a big chunk of them are in, in the US and, and in the UK. Uh, and they're just going to be increasingly important to our global economy. But there's so few financial experiences that, that are explicitly made for them. And, and as, a, as a team, we, we were discussing this. and We just didn't understand why, why that was. And the fourth um, and, and probably most interesting in, in my mind uh, kind of macro trend is this phenomenon of, of social plus. Uh, and it's being massively driven by consumer demand. So look, we as humans, we're social beings. We, we crave connection. We crave community. And we evolved that way to, to, to stay safe, basically. And, and in our modern world, this community, this social side, it provides our identity. It helps us learn, gives us connection. And businesses have started to kind of cater to this much more. Um, and these social plus businesses that, that have a, a kind of core product or, or service, um, but they have an integrated social experience within it. So you think of TikTok, you think of, of Peloton, um, you think of Fortnite. Uh, but in social plus finance, we're only really starting to see the, the tip of that iceberg. And, and we think it's a massive, massive, massive iceberg. So you can see a few companies that, that, are, that are building... 
um, I don't know, social feeds where you can see what your friends are, are buying alongside your card. And, and in the investment space, we've obviously seen the meteoric rise of, of Wall Street bets. But, but on the whole, kind of finance remains pretty private, pretty hidden and super transactional. And, that, and that's just not how younger generations live their lives. So, so yeah, we're, we're working really closely with our customers to, to build a, a kind of rewarding and exciting and a social financial experience that they actually want. Now, you, you kind of mentioned to start with, this is a free debit MasterCard where users can win instant cash rewards every time they, they tap or spend money. They build squads with friends and, and celebrate together. But we have a lot more coming down the pipeline, in, including actually a, a savings product. That's that's really good. I want to just like backtrack for a sec. Um, and for our listeners who are not in the UK, can you just just quickly explain what the boomer version of a premium bond is and what what's that looked like? What that's looked like over throughout history, and and why why everything is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, look, premium bonds are um, they're they're a form of kind of national investment um, offered by National Savings and, and Investment, which is kind of UK government owned. Um, you, in essence, you're, you're entered, you, you buy a, a portion of premium bonds, um, you're entered into a, a random draw at, at the start of every, every month, and, and there are tax-free winnings that you can earn between, I don't know, is it um, £25, I think, maybe is the, is, is the lowest. Uh, you can go up to, up to a million. And there's, there's, they're just so popular. Um, you have millions, 20-odd 20, 20 million people using them, and, and they're saving about... 110, 110 odd, odd billion. So they're incredibly popular. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of the things that people don't realize is, is your actual odds of winning are, are, are pretty low. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the challenges in particular is most people, most people probably have a, a premium bond and they're probably given to it by their, by their grandmother. Um, and, and the issue with these, the, these financial tools is, is that they're they're just not digital. They're, they're not built for a digital world. They, they haven't really changed for, for the last century. So yeah, hopefully that's a, a bit clearer. That, totally clear. Polly, I'm going to come to you as our resident Gen Z. Um, do you have, uh, have you ever, have you ever bought premium bonds before? Do you, do you own any of these? I mean, I literally, as Michael said, I'm pretty sure my granddad uh, bought all the grandchildren premium bonds at one point. And I think we did win once. Someone won. Um, that you just like shocked a memory back into me from like 10, 15 years ago. I'm pretty sure we won. Um, but yeah, I mean, as the token young person and how, who this thing is sort of aimed at, I think it's brilliant. I love it. And I'm, uh, I'm going to be signing up. So, um, I mean, the, you, the news crossed my desk. Awesome. Um, Thank you, Polly. Yeah, no, honestly, I think it's amazing. The news crossed my desk earlier this week and we covered it. Um, in one of our roundups. And I just think it's great. And I love the idea. Um, everyone loves, you know, winning uh, prizes. I think that's amazing, especially even like, like you say, like the pound bonds, I think just even just getting a pound back is just super fun. And I just love the social aspect of everything. And like you say, social and finance are really going to start coming together. And I really want to see more of it as we go along, because like you say, we're social people. And I think especially during the pandemic, everyone's been craving that kind of connection. So why not connect through finance as well as everything else? I think it just makes complete sense. Um, and it's also very refreshing to see a product aimed specifically at Gen Z and, and young millennials like myself, obviously being a bit, uh, <laughs> a bit selfish there, but it is just really great to see finance products aimed at the younger generations designed with them in mind. 
um, taking something like a premium bond and making it almost like brand new. I just, yeah, I think it's really great. And I'm Michael, I think it's brilliant. So <laughs> awesome. Thank Yeah. Thank you. I think you raised a really, really important point there actually. And, um, and no, I, I've already seen lots of lots of companies thinking, okay, how can I rework my my product to be one that might be relevant for for Gen for Gen Z? And and I think people will continue to do that uh, because they're they're such a big part of our of our future economy. But but it's really important to build for this generation that they they have quite different needs, I think, to lots of um, lots of other generations, be they boomers or, or even millennials to to some extent. You need to focus all of all of your attention on on their needs and and they don't want this this one size fits all model they, they, they don't want a product that could work for for everyone um and, and i think that's going to be the challenge for lots of big financial companies they they there may come a time where where they need to decide who they who they want to to focus on and look we that, that let me i guess go back to that report that that ey report because it was fascinating i, I talked uh, about the three patterns that that gen z um, are, are kind of driving as an agenda in uh, in, in fintech earlier, uh, and the first one was was obviously that aversion to, to credit card debt. The, the second one um, is an expectation that that brands reflect their their, their own personal values, and, and and that's really important. But the third one, and, and and this is what you were touching on, Polly, a second ago, is this kind of desire for community and networking and self education within the financial service. And they they want that because that's how they live their their everyday lives. They, I, th- I think that, that no, I think that definitely like it, it is important to like. There's so much buzz and excitement around this, but like, are there downsides really to gamify? Like you and I'm gonna come to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I agree with you, Michael. I, I can see the upsides of the social side. I wonder is as the resident old person here, so the antithesis to Polly. Um, is is there a downside to almost like rewarding the gamification? So you're encouraging people to spend. Uh, you know, I know you said you had a had a savings product coming out soon, but is it actually in the right interest for people to encourage them to spend more and more and more? You know, is it kind of a digital equivalent of scratch cards? No, it's a it's a it's it's a really good question. And and look, we're we're super clear that that's that's not our that's not our focus at all. We we're not encouraging people to overspend. Part part of the way that we do that is by ensuring that um, we don't offer any credit. This isn't a bank account. You 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 can't spend more than you actually have in 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 your account. So I think that's that's really important. What we want to focus on is is the social side of 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 money, I guess. We want we want people to spend what they normally would on their everyday spending. And that is what this is for. It's for your everyday spending. Um, but we want people to have the chance to to win off the back of that. So if they were previously using, I don't know, they could be using their their typical bank account, a neo bank account, they go out and uh, do some shopping on Amazon, jump on the tube, they go and, uh, I don't know, buy a coffee, then there's just the upside that they could win a reward without the risk of um, of losing. So they can't they can't necessarily get into debt, or they can't get into debt. And, and there's no gambling on the side of it. So no, I, I agree, I understand your point, but I don't necessarily think that, that that's going to be a concern. I think definitely, yeah. Truly, digital financial services um, are geared toward you know building for your communities, and this definitely is is an innovative product. But let's let's move on um, to the next story. So, J.P. Morgan agrees to acquire forty nine percent stake in Greek fintech Viva Wallet. Uh, so, J.P. Morgan has acquired a forty nine percent stake in the Athens based payments fintech Viva Wallet, subject to regulatory approvals. Uh, financial terms 
of the transaction were have not been disclosed, but sources close to the deal told Reuters that Viva Wallet was valued at more than $2 billion. Uh, so JP Morgan's investment will top $1.15 billion, including a capital increase in Viva's wallet, um, which will not dilute its founder's majority stake of 51.5%. Um, lots of numbers. So cloud-based Viva Wallet, which operates in 23 countries across Europe, provides card acceptance services through its POS application, add on Google Play devices, um, and advanced payment systems in, in online stores. So the acquisition comes on the back of the U.S. banking giant laying out plans to spend more than $12 billion in technology in 2022 alone. Yeah, so we're going to cut away to hear a little bit more about uh, what this news means to the wider fintech scene in Greece. We reached out to Dimitri Kalavoros Gusio um, of Velocity Partners, a venture capital fund based in Athens looking to fuel Greek entrepreneurs around the globe. So JP Morgan's investment in Viva Wallet is quite important for uh, quite a few reasons for the local scene. Number one, it is a great testament that great fintech products and champions within this industry uh, can be built in non-central European markets, uh, in, the, in this case, uh, the case of Greece. Uh, second being uh, many of the higher executives, C-level executives, and uh, uh, senior personnel of uh, Viva, they will eventually um, resurface uh, with new roles. Some of them might become angels, some of them might become entrepreneurs and startup founders themselves. So being able to have this sort of reflow of talent within the ecosystem will give uh, a great pipeline of uh, new projects and new ventures in the in the coming years. So all in all, uh, a great moment for the wider Greek startup scene by the fact that we all welcome the first uh, Greek unicorn this week. That's awesome. I'm going to start with Ewan um, on JP Morgan uh, seeming to hoover up and and go, being going on a bit of a shopping spree right now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think actually it's great for the Greek scene, as he says, you know, this is the first unicorn. And actually what these, these places need is that first infusion of cash because then the money comes into the founders and it can and it can roll on. And actually you can build stuff from that. Um, you know, I think we kind of had that in the UK with, you know, the Monzos and the, Monzos and the Revoluts and the Starlings or whatever. And actually you just need to kick that on. JP Morgan has invested in a lot of people, um, open invest, nutmeg, you know, I set up v, VW payments, they've just taken sort of a VW payments, they've just taken 75% in. They are spending an absolute fortune. And I think it's something like, you know, as you said, $12 billion. This is more than most tech companies spend. It is absolutely crazy. And I think, you know, I know Jamie Dimon, you know, last year or so, he said, you know, banks need to be scared shitless of, of fintechs. He's certainly putting his money where his mouth is, but that is a lot of money. And you've kind of got to sit there and thinking, how on earth can they can they spend twelve billion dollars? It, it, it's madness. Twelve billion is you know I feel I don't know twelve billion to me feels like like change to a bank like J P Morgan. You know like these guys are multi hundred billions um, is is what they're worth and sure. But it, it, it's it's yeah, it's still it, it's it's yeah compared to valuations, but operating cost. Yeah, what I'm saying is that like this is a drop in the ocean for them, but is going to absolutely obliterate like any startups, you know, in the space. And like I said, like, you know, this is, they're going on a shopping spree, I guess. Um, but like, do you, do you see, what, what do you think is, if you could look into a crystal ball, you and what do you think the future of JP Morgan's uh, presence in Europe is going to look like? I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, they're obviously pushing stuff hard. They just launched the, uh, you know, the new Chase Bank. Um, 
you know, I, I think they are spending a lot of cash. Whether they can actually turn that into viable fintech propositions, um, it's one thing to buy them. It's the second thing to be able to nurture them. You know, and I don't think banks have, or any large organization does not have a particularly good track record of nurturing the talent that actually grew the proposition out. You know, if they start to bring it into the main organization, they apply all the compliance and the usual governance stuff that banks have, that will kill a lot of these startups. So you might spend a lot of money, but do they die? Polly, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I just think it's a, a super interesting thing. And, you know, obviously with that that big old pot of money that they've got to spend, I, we're just going to see it completely happen even more and more. And, you know, it's interesting, I guess, that they started with, with Greek fintech maybe, but I mean, you know, this is the... Um, Landscape increase is looking pretty good at the moment for fintech, and I think they had a, a pretty good year last year for startups when it came to investment. Um, and you know, Viva Wallet is no you know small player, regardless. Um, and I guess my my kind of main point on this one is we're going to see a lot more, as we have already seen a lot in the industry of like these big banks acquiring or teaming up with a lot of like smaller players comparatively in this case I guess it all ties into the co-opetition if you want to use that buzzword thing we are seeing at the moment of how incumbents can disrupt the industry they kind of do it by teaming up with the people who are doing the disrupting in the first place so yeah it's it's a super interesting thing and I guess it's it just makes sense for JP Morgan to you know do the things that they're doing. They've got twelve billion dollars, so let's let them get on with it. Yeah, what what, what I was going to say, I agree with you. I agree with you, Polly. What I was going to say is, it's a bit of a two sided coin. So, so as someone building a, a business myself, if I was one of the the founders of of this company and I'd got this um, got this huge potential paycheck, that that's the out that you'd be working so hard for 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 such a long time. So, there's in in one sense, the, these acquisitions are 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 brilliant for for founders and 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 for entrepreneurs but but the the thing that i worry about is uh is actually where the company goes from there so you might have a there are tons of examples there's a recent one um with visa's kind of acquisition of um of of tink and i got some kind of insider knowledge in there that that actually um that, that actually the the business and, and some of the things that, that were perhaps uh, said at the at the negotiating table haven't kind of come to fruition. So you, you you want to still be able to run and manage your business in the way that that, that you that you did before, but you want the 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 black book and the and the uh, I guess the the budget as well to kind of extend that potential growth. And uh, and I think that yeah, I, I do have a slight con- concern here. Although it's great for entrepreneurs, but but the other thing is, the the other thing is if these guys are throwing so much cash cash at it. It, it it puts you off as a as a as a as a small business um, owner or someone that that wants to go into a disruptive space. If if you've got someone with an unlimited budget in 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 your space, uh, it's really hard to to compete. It's really hard actually just to make enough noise to compete. You might have a much better product, but but actually actually making the enough noise to to get visibility, man, it's it's tough. So yeah, it's a bit of a two edged sword. Uh, I think this one. Definitely a double edge. I mean, I want to come back to what Polly said earlier about, you know, 22, 2021 was a good year uh, for, for for fintech in Greece. Um, you know, record year for Greek startups. Like like you said, Michael, it, it is a double edged sword, right? Like 500 million euros in funding in, in the country uh, within startups. But Greece is also struggling with a brain drain. About 400,000 people have emigrated from Greece since 2010, 90% of whom hold a degree. So um, how much can big foreign direct investment 
lift an ecosystem, do you think, Michael? Like, like you as, as a startup founder, um, and, you know, obviously you're in, you're in the UK, right? So competing for, um, competing for, for talent, um, and for, for market share as well. Imagine now you're in like a smaller economy, like, like Greece, um, how, how much of an effect does big foreign direct investment have, uh, to lift an ecosystem or to disrupt it even? Uh, look, I think I think any investment, uh, be it foreign, foreign uh, direct investment or, or other, is is valuable for for that space. And and if you can, if you if you have more capital, you can you can hire better people. You you can actually reverse some of the the, the brain drain that you're talking about. People want to work for aspirational companies. And and actually, one one of the great things that that, that we had here in the, in the UK over the last ten years, while well, I've been in the in the fintech space, is we had a really progressive regulator, and and there was lots of investment available for. For, for early stage companies and 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 it was super helpful to not just um, retain talent but actually bring new talent uh, get entrepreneurs interested in in creating fintech businesses and build a hub around that 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 just kind of drove more and more and more so yeah look I I, I think it I think it is it, it is helpful in in that in that sense absolutely all right um let's move on to um, some stories that we didn't have time to cover. So this is the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the stories from the week that we haven't really had much of a chance to cover, but still do deserve a shout out. Uh, Ewan, do you want to get us started? Yeah, so uh, Outfly sort of had an article this week, Huawei turns to curve for NFC payments in the wake of Google ban. So UK fintech curve has been drafted in to enable NFC payments on Huawei's latest smartphones. The partnership is similar to an arrangement that Curve already has with Samsung. However, for Huawei, the stakes are probably far higher. Since 2019, Huawei has been cut off using Google's core Android services like the Google Play Store and Google Pay due to a US trade ban against the company. And it's left Huawei in a situation where its latest smartphones are missing out on key features that were usually provided by Google software like NFC payments. Curve would appear to be one of the final pieces of the puzzle, with it now being able to provide the mobile wallet that combines debit, credit, and loyalty cards all in one place. So all Huawei customers in Europe can now download the Curve app and start making NFC contactless mobile payments with Curve. So um, you know, Curve is, as I mentioned before, it, it's already providing that capability to Samsung. So to be able to offer it out, Huawei obviously is subject to uh, the US trade ban, being a Chinese, uh, Chinese supplier. Getting access to that payment payment capability is important. I think the interesting thing is actually if it, if it gets too too successful, what does that actually do to Curve? You know, do the Biden administration actually go for Curve and start shutting them down to uh, put them under a trade ban as well? Tricky one. Yeah. All right. Next up, we've got the talent. This is from TechCrunch. So this came out today. Tanzanian fintech Nala raises $10 million in a seed round to build the Revolut for Africa. So Nala, a Tanzanian cross-border payments company, which recently pivoted uh, from local to international money transfers, has raised $10 million in a new funding round. The seed round comes three years later after Nala secured a seven-figure pre-seed round led by Axel in 2019. Uh, so in that time, Nala has built a mobile money service in East Africa that's, and scaled it to more than 250,000 users. In 2020, Nala started testing international money transfers after some users expressed interest in moving money from the UK to East Africa, uh, East African countries, so like Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. With Africa being the most expensive region to send money to, um, so just for context, with 10.6% in average transaction fees, uh, the digital senders like Nala 
pitch themselves to customers as platforms with the best rates and the lowest prices. So the chief executive officer at Nala, Benjamin Fernandez, um, plans to be live in 12 African countries by the end of the year. This is an incredible feat. I think that um, cross-border payments in Africa is just, is such a, a tough nut to crack. Like it's it's 54 countries, different languages, various competencies of their governments. Like the, the financial services system is incredibly fragmented and these guys have found a way to um, to, to really, to hack it and like really uh, also in, in, a, in a compliant way. So um, congrats to them for raising all this money and um, can't wait to see what, what they build um, across the continent. There's a couple other players doing this like similar work. So Chipper Cash um, is, comes to mind, Eversend as well. Uh, so definitely uh, the, the cross-border payments within Africa um, is going to heat up a lot in the next few years. All right, Ewan, back to you. So the final one, um, Pakistani digital banks are finally able to get a banking license following the SPB's announcement. So the SPB, which is the State Bank of Pakistan, has set the stage for a new era in banking in Pakistan with, in 2022, with the introduction of a new licensing and regulatory framework for digital banks that are, is in line with international best practice. This is the first step towards introducing a completely digital bank that will provide all the banking services from account opening, to deposit and lending through digital means, and the customers will not be able to visit any branch physically. The framework for the digital banks is the latest in a series of recent initiatives by the State Bank of Pakistan towards the digitalization of banking and payment solutions in the country. The newly introduced licensing and regulatory framework provides details for setting up digital banks as, sep as a separate and distinct category in Pakistan. In line with international best practices and, and uh, the assessment of the overall banking situation in Pakistan, the SPB has decided to initially issue up to five digital bank licenses, which means that essentially the SPB is looking to attract players with a strong value proposition, a robust technical infrastructure and sufficient financial strength, good technical expertise and an effective risk management culture. The expectation is that there will be a few digital banks that will be operational in the course of 2022. I think for me, the really interesting thing here is you can see the march of the regulatory, uh, the power of the regulators throughout the world. Obviously, the UK has led that with the FinTech Sandbox and the FCA, you know, as, as has been observed before, a highly progressive regulator. Uh, you know, throughout the West of the world, Hong Kong followed with, you know, HKMA with all their digital banks. And now, obviously, it's moving out into the rest of the world. Uh, I think if this works and actually they can get rid of all their governance and they can actually move them forward properly. This is great for a country like Pakistan. Okay, let's bring everyone back for the final story of the week. So this is our end finally story. So Bolt CEO called Y Combinator and Stripe the mob in a fiery Twitter thread. It's a bit of drama on Twitter this week. So Twitter was a buzz this week over a long thread written by on Monday by Bolt CEO Ryan Breslow, who claimed that Stripe and Y Combinator are mob bosses using every power move imaginable to block competitors from becoming successful. The tweet gave Breslow's account of Bolt's rise to its current $11 billion valuation, having raised $355 million this month um, very recently. Uh, so in Brazil's telling, VCs and customers ignored Bolt in the early days because it wasn't part of Y Combinator, the prestigious Y Combinator, and Y Combinator informally backed Stripe. Hmm. Uh, when he was, he talked about Fast, uh, a company called Fast's Easy Raise, quote unquote, Easy Raise of $100 million, Breslow tweeted that nearly overnight, I had a new competitor with roughly the same valuation and more capital in the bank than us. They did their deal with the mob and allowed them to own a considerable amount of equity in the company. So as evidence, Breslow also pointed to the fact that 
few well-known VC firms that invested in Fast showed interest in Bolt too. So initial, initialized capital co-founder Gary Tan, a former YC uh, partner, tweeted, this take by a Stripe competitor is just dishonest, while Joe Benjamin, the founder of Profs, called it a marketing stunt. Um, had, just let's go to come to the group. Um, Polly, did you see this on Twitter this week? Is this something that you, you caught wind of? I didn't catch it like as it happened. I've read through it now, which is a shame because I, I love a bit of Twitter beef. Uh, there is nothing I love more than a lengthy Twitter thread and then the memes that usually follow afterwards. And there were some good ones on this one too. But no, I didn't. I only saw it today. Um, so yeah. This is this is my favourite story, I think, of this week. It just, uh, for, to, to me, um, it, it just, it has to be, uh, it has to be a marketing stunt. You can't tell me that someone that, that that's raised, what, best part of 350 million US dollars, doesn't obviously know how uh, how the VC and 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 the work the world in Silicon Valley works. Of course, people who are invested in in your competitor are not going to be interested in in investing in you. And and I just can't imagine someone who's the, the CEO of that of, of that company thinking that. So I think it has to be it has to be a marketing stunt. I think was it you said was it Joe Benjamin? Uh, I think he's uh, he's he's hit the nail on the head. Although I do I do hope it is true because I'd really like to see some crazy beef play out over the over the next few weeks between all the CEOs of these various various companies when we end up in a little UFC bout or something. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how the Collison brothers will do, you know, man on man sort of the punching gloves. But for me, I think the interesting thing is this idea that you know the only thing that really matters is is the US market. And I can guess, you know, of course you're going to tie up all your your local VCs, but you know, kind of that point about the Viva wallet and the Greek scene that we were talking about earlier. You know, the world is a big place. And, you know, there are a lot of fund. you know, the US market has historically not gone for, for, for the rest of the world. And so, you know, let's, people are growing businesses in other places. This guy can go elsewhere. Um, you know, why did Stripe work? Stripe worked because it was a great API. You know, it was simple to use. That's a, that's a massive thing. I'm not saying Bolt is bad, but, you know, that is one of the main reasons why Stripe has driven so fast. Of course, he's tied up the thing, you know. This idea of Y Combinator, it's got a, it's got a sort of a, a cachet, etc. But you don't have to be part of a Sequoia-funded Y Combinator business to take take over the world. You can do it in other ways. They are not the gatekeepers. It's a stunt. Absolutely, I think definitely a lot of us seem to be on the skeptical side of this. And and you know what, I don't think this was a, a smart stunt on on Breslow's on Breslow's side. So. Uh, well, until next week for some more um, Twitter beefs. <laughs> let's let's wrap the show here. So this wraps this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much for today's guests. Where can people find out more about you, Polly? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter, which is at opollygene, or if you want to hear more from the FinTech Times, head to the FinTech Times website, fintechtimes.com, or their Twitter, at the FinTech Times. Thank you. Michael? Uh, so on LinkedIn, as Michael Wilkinson, you can also grab me on Twitter as at MW underscore startups. And of course, go in and check out joineverything.com um, and sign up to the waitlist. Awesome. And you and where can we find out more about you? So I think LinkedIn, I'm you and Silver there. And also on the latest Banking Decoders series that we just rolled out on 11FS, I've got a few cameos on that. Awesome. And as for me, uh, you can find me at 11fs.com, also on the Bird app at NotGuerra. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Uh, have a lovely day, everyone. <laughs>